Hello everybody, this is Dan Trott of Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Luke chapter 21 discussing the Olivet Discourse. Last audio I discussed Luke 21 verses 20 through 24 where Luke mentions the abomination of desolation, the great escape to Pella, days of vengeance, which is the same thing as the great tribulation. Now we're going to start in verse 25 of Luke chapter 21 and we're only going to cover three verses, 25, 26, and 27. This is where Jesus is said to be where Jesus predicts that he is coming on the clouds, and he also predicts these great signs in heaven. I've already discussed this thoroughly in Matthew 24, verses 27 through 30, so I'm going to splice in my discussion of that portion in Matthew, Matthew 24, verse 27 through 30, and that splice begins now. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. We have just finished talking about the so-called Great Tribulation. Actually, Jesus called it the Great Tribulation. But when I say so-called, I mean I'm not referring to the way the futurists refer it to the end of the world, seven-year Great Tribulation, the saints getting raptured out before that. I'm talking about the Great Tribulation of Jerusalem being destroyed by the coming of Jesus in judgment at AD 70, which is the theme of the Orthodox Preterist interpretation of the Olivet Discourse. We continue here in this discourse, Jesus is given to Peter, James, and John, and Andrew on the Mount of Olives on Tuesday of Passion Week. He's got about three more days to live before he's crucified. Verse 27, Jesus says to the disciples, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now the coming of the Son of Man there I'm going to take to be the judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70. And we'll, and we'll talk about that word coming in just a minute. But let's right now talk about what does Jesus mean when he says lightning coming from the east as far as the west. It's a metaphor. What does it mean? Well, there's three points of this metaphor. Lightning is, number one, visible. Number two, it comes suddenly. And number three, in the Old Testament, it signifies judgment. Lightning's visibility fits the context because the false messiahs were coming in secret. Remember in the last audio... I talked about in Jesus in the discourse, talked about false messiahs who were in the hidden rooms and in the wilderness that were coming in secret. And Jesus said, don't go running out to them. But in contrast to that, Jesus's judgment is going to be visible. And how is it going to be visible? Well, you could look at Jerusalem after 8070, after August of 8070. If you had Google satellite back then, you could look down there and you could see a big hole in the ground. Extremely visible. Now, futurists will argue here that this must mean the visible return of Jesus at the end of the at the end of time, as lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west. In other words, they agree that one of the points of the metaphor of lightning is that lightning is very visible. But the answer to that is, well, was not the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 visible, or was it invisible? No, it was visible. So the metaphor fits AD 70. And as far as the suddenness of lightning, the second aspect of lightning, the Jewish war did come suddenly, quickly, without warning. It started for no real reason. Remember, they were in the middle of the Roman peace, the famous Pax Romana, Romana, the Pax Romana, and all of a sudden the Romans sent a ruler named Jesseus Florus to Israel to govern it, and he was a stupid tyrant. He did a lot of ridiculous and absurd things and got the Jews all stirred up, and they started to revolt and started the Jewish war. So the coming of the Son of Man came suddenly. Peace, and all of a sudden, three and a half years later, their whole kingdom was destroyed. And lightning also symbolizes judgment. Number one thing, the first thing it symbolizes is visibility. The second thing is suddenness. And the third thing is judgment. Look in the Old Testament. 
Exodus 19:16. On the third day, when morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and a loud trumpet sound, so that all the people in the camp shuddered. So lightning is associated with the judgment that the law was bringing on sin and unrighteousness. Deuteronomy 33:2. He said, "The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. That's the desert area around, right north of Mount Sinai." He shone forth from Mount Paran, again, that's the place in the desert. And he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones, 10,000 angels. In his right hand there was flashing lightning for them. So the angels are said to accompany the coming of the law and also lightning. Once again, lightning symbolizes the judgment of the law. Zechariah 9:14. then the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. And the Lord God will blow the trumpet and will march in the storm winds of the south. So lightning is a common symbol for judgment. And that fits 8070 just perfectly. Now let's talk about Jesus' coming. So will, the, will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now this is a key word because most of the time when people brainwashed by a futurist, Hal Lindsey, Tim LaHaye type books, when they hear the coming of the Son of Man, they just automatically assume the second bodily coming of Jesus at the end of time, which, by the way, I do affirm. I'm not trying to say that that's not going to happen. Of course it's not. Going to, it's going to happen. First, first Thessalonians will tell you that. But here Jesus is talking about, as all the context indicates, he's talking about the, his coming in judgment on Jerusalem to destroy the city. Now, this word parousia, coming, cannot mean, it is not a technical word for the second return of Christ. It is not a technical word for the coming of Jesus at the end of time. As John Gill says, it means coming in judgment on Jerusalem. Gill points out further, it's stupid for the Jews to be looking for false messiah when Jesus had come and destroyed Jerusalem. He'd already come, he destroyed it, and so hey, you are following this, re this weaver out into the wilderness, and you're going to bring about the messianic kingdom even after the Jews have destroyed Jerusalem. No, his coming will be visible, sudden, and get over it. He's the Messiah, not these false messiahs. Gill denies that this coming means come, Jesus is coming at the end of time, and I deny it too. I don't believe it. Now, here's some scriptural examples of coming which do not refer to the end of the world. And again, as I give you these examples, I do not mean to say that Jesus is not going to come back. He is. He's going to come back physically. I've got a good teaching on YouTube in my Orthodox Preterist playlist. There is a video on hyperproterism, which does deny that Jesus is coming back physically at the end of the world, and I debunk that very thoroughly. I do believe he's coming back physically at the end of the world, but it does the coming does not always mean that, and I'm going to give you some examples to prove this beyond a reasonable doubt to a to a certitude that coming does not always mean the physical coming at the end of time. Deuteronomy thirty three two. I just read that verse in the context of lightning. But let's look at this verse again and focus on the word come. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and appeared to them from Seir. He shone on them from Mount Paran and came. The Lord came with 10,000 holy ones. So there you have a coming in judgment, or with the law at least, which is judgment of sin. He came with the angels. He came. By the way, as we're going to see later on, the Olivet Discourse has angels too in the process of Jesus' coming too, which is kind of an interesting parallel. All right, and in the New Testament, here we're going to look at this word, parousia, coming, James 5, 7 through 8. James says this, Therefore, brothers, be patient until the Lord's coming. Be patient until the Lord's parousia. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Well, now, James was writing in the first century A.D., and he said the Lord's coming is near. 
Now, what part of near do we not understand? How could the brethren be patient for 2,000 years? Be patient, brothers, until the Lord's coming 2,000 years from now. They'll be hey, that You can't wait 2,000 years if you're a human being. You can't wait that long. It's obvious James is talking about the coming and judgment on Jerusalem. He's saying be patient. He's going to be coming within one generation, and he will relieve us of this persecution from your Jewish brethren. Second Peter 1.16 says this, For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now this is Peter referring to the coming of Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration, because Peter was there at the Mount of Transfiguration. Two verses later, he says this, And we heard the voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. So the context here is clearly talking about the coming of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, and that was not Jesus coming back at the end of time. Now, some I've, I've got a query to myself. Well, maybe Peter was talking about seeing Jesus there and then Jesus telling him about his coming in 87. That's a speculation. Could be. I, I won't stand on that one, but I do know that this coming is not referring to the coming of Jesus at the end of time. It's referring to, probably, to Jesus' coming to the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew 16, verse 28. This is Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he says, I assure you, there are some standing here. This is actually right before he went on the Mount of Transfiguration, excuse me. And Jesus said, I assure you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, this has to refer to, come, to Jesus' coming in judgment on Jerusalem in 8070. A lot of people say, well, this is referring to the end of time. He can't refer to the end of time. How can somebody standing there not taste death for 2,000 plus years when Jesus comes back at the end of time? That's impossible. Everybody's going to be dead before Jesus comes back at the end of time. Everybody of those standing there. Some people say, well, it refers to the Mount of Transfiguration, which was going to happen in just a few days. Well, they can't refer to that either. How can Jesus be referring a few days hence to the Mount of Transfiguration and says, some of you standing here are going to be living three days, four, five, six days from now. I forgot the exact days. I think it's six days. Anyway, for a few days, how many of you are going to be not tasting death? Of Some of you will not some of you will live for six days. That's not saying anything because all of them are going to live for six days. Of course, they're all going to not taste death. That's, that doesn't say anything. So to summarize, if you take coming that Jesus mentions here as coming at the end of the world, none of you, some of you will not taste death till the end of the world. There are too few people who will not taste death, namely zero. But if you take it, meaning the coming at the Mount of Transfiguration in a few days, then you got 100% of the people will not taste death. So you go from 0% at the end of the world to 100%. Uh, if you take it to mean the Mount of Transfiguration, 0% and 100% does not equal to some. Jesus said some of you will live until I come. And so if he comes in 8070, that's true. Some would live and some would not because some will be old enough to make it to 8070 and some will not be old enough. But Jesus said, some of you standing here, that means 40 years from now, some of you would be dead and some of you would be alive. It's perfect. So coming there means 8070, as does the coming in the Olivet Discourse, which we're now examining. Revelation 2.5. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is Jesus speaking judgment to one of the seven churches in Revelation. And Jesus says, I will come to you, come in judgment. Removing a lampstand is judgment. 
John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you, Jesus says. That probably refers to a spiritual coming at Pentecost. If he says, I will not leave you as orphans, I'm coming to you 2,000 plus years later. Well, that doesn't seem like that's very comforting to the people he was speaking to. Now, of course, he could be speaking to those that they represent, Christians 2,000 plus years, but I don't think so. I think he was more likely going to be referring to the people he was trying to comfort. John 14, 23, five verses later. Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Well, that's probably referring to spiritual coming of the Holy Spirit. It's not referring to Jesus' bodily coming back because it, because it says my father and I will come. Well, obviously, the father's not going to bodily go anywhere because he doesn't have a body. Revelation 3.20, listen, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and have dinner with him and he with me. How can Jesus physically come into a Christian and have dinner with him? Of course, it doesn't mean coming physically back at the end of time. Malachi 3, 1 through 2. See, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. That's John the Baptist being prophesied about by Malachi. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you desire. And that probably is Jesus coming to the Old Testament Jews, he, and, re, and it's referring to his temple, which it was his temple at the very first of his ministry before the Pharisees, before he says, your temple, before Jesus says, no, nah, it's not mine anymore. So it's the Lord coming to his temple, the messenger of the covenant, and that's Jesus. See, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Well, that's not referring to Jesus coming at the end of time. That's referring to Jesus' first coming. But who can endure the day of his coming? In other words, who's going to live after Jesus comes? Who will be able to stand when he appears? Now, that second coming, he said, this in verse 2, when it says, who can endure the day of his coming, 80, uh, Adam Clark actually says that refers to the destruction of the temple in AD 70, and it might, or it could be, John Gill says it's referring to the preaching of the gospel of the Jews. He's still talking about his first coming there to preach. Whichever way it is, it's definitely not the, Jesus coming back at the end of time. End of story. Here's another example where parousia is not a technical term for the second coming of Christ at the end of time. 1 Corinthians 16, 17. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. That's just a simple use of the words talking about human beings coming to Paul. So please, got to get out of our mind that when we see coming, it means necessarily means the second coming of Christ. It could mean the second coming of Christ, but it doesn't have to, and here it doesn't. Now, the lightning is said to come from the east and the west, and I just think that just means it's visible across the sky. However, Adam Clark, and I think he's pushing this a little too much, he says it could refer to the Roman army coming in to destroy Jerusalem because it came from the north because the Roman army, which many of which, much of which was stationed at garrisons along the Euphrates River, which was to the north and east of Jerusalem. So the Roman army, if it came from Euphrates, it would have to go from east to west to get to Israel. Sometimes, most of the time in prophecy, it says it come, the armies come, that invade Israel come from the north cause, because the Euphrates River bends over as it, co as it comes from the east. It bends over Israel to the north, and so the armies have An army going east to west cannot cross the desert there. It has to go north a little bit, then west, and then south across the Euphrates River. That's the normal route. But at any rate, if you could, you could kind of condense all that and say... The army came from the east. The Roman armies did come from the east because that's where they, where, they, where they were garrisoned there on the Euphrates River. So the Romans' army's path matched that of the light, lightning that Jesus mentioned here. That's according to Adam Clark. I think that's going a little bit too far, but it's an interesting idea. 
Let's move on to Matthew 24, verse 28. Jesus continues, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, my NIV study Bible says that was a common proverb back then. And here's some options uh, as to the point of the metaphor. First of all, obviousness. Lightning already symbolized that in the previous verse. So here, this proverb could also symbolize the obviousness of the destruction. The vultures are obvious to people who, because they, they circle around the dead body and everybody can see the vultures. So the coming of Jesus will be as obvious as vultures gathering around a corpse. Of course, contrast that with the false messiahs who are hiding in the desert in the, in the inner room. So if you look at the context, the idea of obviousness is continued on here. From my previous audio, I mentioned that. And then in this audio, we're still talking about obviousness. The vultures are obvious when they see a corpse. Now, futurists like agreeing with that say that, see, the second bodily coming of Jesus is obvious. Well, the answer to that is very simple. The judgment on Jerusalem AD 70 was pretty obvious, too. You'd have to be blind to miss it. It was an incredible event. Now, not only do vultures symbolize obviousness, they also symbolize judgment. Now, I'm going to, just like the lightning. You know, lightning is obvious in judgment as well as suddenness, and here the vultures are symbolize obviousness and judgment. Here's some scriptures, Deuteronomy 28:49. And by the way, before I read you this verse, the Greek word that's translated vulture is also the word for eagle. And if you think about it, a vulture just looks like a nasty-looking eagle. If you look at it from the side, a profile, they're very similar. And in fact, the Greek word is exactly the same. It can be translated either way. Deuteronomy 28:49. this is the NASB. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down. So the invading nation enemies of Israel are compared to an eagle swooping down on the nation, a nation whose language you shall not understand. So there you have a vulture or an eagle as a symbol of judgment. Hosea 8:1. put the horn to your mouth. One like an eagle comes against the house of the Lord because they transgress my covenant and rebel against my law. By the way, I'm not going to go through who the invading nations are because a lot of times it's not clear because some of these prophets aren't very clear as to when they're writing. In fact, they never say when they're writing and you have to speculate as to which invading power is coming many times. And so I'm not going to get into that. The point is it's an invading power compared to a vulture, compared to an eagle, which means that Jesus is talking about judgment here. Jeremiah 19, 17, 7 through 9. I will spoil the plans of Judah and Jerusalem in this place. I will make them fall by the sword before their enemies, by the hand of those who want to take their life. I will provide their corpses as food for the birds of the sky and for the wild animals of the land. So there's another instance of birds of the sky being being likened to or being associated with judgment on Israel. Jeremiah 7, chapter, verses 33 through 34. The corpses of these people will become food for the birds of the sky once more. Then Isaiah 46:11, I call a bird of prey from the east. A bird of prey. John Gill says it was Cyrus. I'm not really sure who that was referring to. Could be Nebuchadnezzar. But Isaiah says, I call a bird of prey from the east, a man for my purpose from a far country. Yes, I have spoken, so I will bring it about. A bird of prey. Again, birds associated with judgment. Now, I mentioned that the word, the Greek word for vulture could also be translated as eagles. In fact, let me give you a list of versions that do translate it as eagles instead of vultures. The American Standard Version, the Amplified, Green's Literal, the English Revised Version, the King James Version, the New King James Version, the Revised Standard Version, the Dewey Ram Version, and the Young's Literal Translation. All translate that verb as eagles. Now, if that's the proper translation, look how 
applicable that is to the Romans coming in to invade Israel because all the Roman military standards had on them a picture of eagles, and eagle was the symbol of the Roman Empire, as John Gill points out. Here's a quote from Gill. Every legion had an eagle, went before it, made of gold or silver, and carried upon the top of a spear. John Gill continues, trying to show that the Romans surrounded the dead carcass of rabbinic Judaism. Quote, the people of the Jews are designed by it in their fallen, deplorable, miserable, and lifeless state, who were like to the body of a man or any other creature struck dead with lightning from heaven. Another quote, wherever the Jews were, whether at Jerusalem, this is from Gill, Wherever the Jews were, whether at Jerusalem, where the body and carcass of them was, in a most forlorn and desperate condition, or in other parts of the country, the Roman eagles or legions would find them out and make an utter destruction of them. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. The Roman armies, called so partly from their strength and fierceness, and partly from the figure of these animals, was always wrought on their which was always wrought on their ensigns, or even in brass, placed on the tops of their ensign staves, it is remarkable that the Roman fury pursued these wretched men wheresoever they were found. They were a dead carcass doomed to be devoured, and the Roman eagles were the commissioned devourers. See the pitiful account in Josephus' War of the Jews. So I think it's very clear that Jesus is predicting the destruction of Jerusalem. When, he's, when he talks about the vultures or the eagles surrounding the car carcass, he's referring to the dead carcass of Jerusalem. He's referring to its obvious destruction. He's referring to its sudden destruction. He's referring to its Roman destruction. Matthew 24, verse 29. Jesus continues immediately after the tribulation of those days. He's already called this the Great Tribulation, and now he's still talking about the tribulation of those days, the Jewish War, the three and a half years between A.D. 66 and A.D. 70. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the celestial powers will be shaken. And this is some of my favorite rhetoric here because futurists, and I was raised on this stuff, they always try to take it literally and they talk about, oh, there's going to be eclipses and the moon's going to turn blood, a blood red moon and all this nonsense. Stars will fall from the sky. I don't know what, how they take that literally, unless it's falling stars like meteors. Of course, you know, you start talking about blood-red moons and meteors falling from the stars. That's not literal anymore. That's not literal at all. Moon not shedding its light means that doesn't mean it. it well, I guess you say literally it's an eclipse, but it sounds more to me like it's a moon that just went dark, went black. Depends on how literal you want to be. It doesn't matter because this rhetoric was not meant to be taken literally. It's what David Chilton calls, I think it's David Chilton, the Preterist scholar, Says it refers, uh, says it uh, can be categorized as decreation rhetoric. It's the opposite of creation because it symbolizes judgment. This sort of language is used all the time in the Old Testament. It was never meant to be taken literally and, in fact, cannot be taken literally. Let me give you some examples. Isaiah 13:10. Indeed, the stars of the sky and its constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shine. The sun will be dark when it rises? Come on, how can that be taken literally? Of course it wasn't taken literally back then. This was Isaiah referring to the destruction of Babylon. Isaiah 24, verses 21 through 23. On that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven above and kings of the earth below. They will be gathered together like prisoners in a pit. They will be confined to a dungeon. After many days they will be punished. The moon will be put to shame and the sun disgraced. Isaiah 34, verses 3 through 4. Their slain will be thrown out, and the stench of their corpses will rise. The mountains will flow with their blood. All the heavenly bodies will dissolve. The skies will roll up like a scroll, and the stars will all wither as leaves wither on the vine and foliage on the fig tree. Ezekiel 32, 7-8 When I snuff you out, 
I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light. I will darken all the shining lights in the heavens over you, and will bring darkness on your land. Joel 2.10 The earth quakes before them, the sky shakes, the sun and moon grow dark, and the stars cease their shining. Joel 2.31 The sun will be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the great and awe-inspiring day of the Lord comes. That, of course, was, was fulfilled at Pentecost. Peter quoted that verse. And at Pentecost, by the way, did the sun turn to darkness at Pentecost? Did the moon turn to blood? I don't think so. Joel 3.15, the sun and moon will grow dark and the stars will cease their shining. Amos 8.9, and in that day, this is the declaration of the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon. I will darken the land in the daytime. The sun go down at noon? I don't think so. Not literally. 2 Samuel 22, verses 8-13, through 13, then the earth shook and quaked. The foundations of the hem heavens trembled. They shook because he burned with anger. Jeremiah 4, verse 23 through 24. I looked at the earth and it was formless and empty. I looked at the heavens and their light was gone. I looked at the mountains and they were quaking. All the hills shook. So all of this Old Testament decreation scriptures, all of these scriptures must be interpreted metaphorically. They cannot be interpreted literally. If we interpreted them literally, the universe would be gone. What is the purpose of this type of rhetoric? To show there's going to be regime change, that there's going to be a judgment on somebody's kingdom. And in this case, Jesus is preaching judgment on the Jewish kingdom. Now look how silly futurist interpretations appear when they try to deal with interpreting these Old Testament scriptures literally. Here's an example in the Thomas Nelson Study Bible for the New King James Version. Quoting Isaiah 34.3, the Thomas Nelson notes refer to this phrase here, mountains will flow with their blood. Well, the first step that the futurist editors of this Bible do is they futurize the reference with no reference to historical fulfillment. They just ignore any possible historical fulfillment of that verse. They automatically put it into the future with no justification just because they want to. And then step two, they literalize the reference to the point of absurdity. Mountains will flow with their blood. And this is how the Thomas Nelson Bible literally deals with that. The blood of the slain would be so great that it would create mudslides. Really? Are we really supposed to believe that there's going to be so much blood flowing that it's going to create mudslides? Please. I mean, that's absurd. Well, even if it is reasonable, which it's not, but if it is, if it were reasonable, would the mountains literally flow or melt? I mean, you know, the literalists always talk about we need to be literal. The futurists always talk about how we need to be literal. But then when it says the mountains will flow with their blood, are the mountains literally flowing when there's a blood mudslide? Will the mountains literally flow? Now, some futurists will admit these Old Testament scriptures are hyperbolic, prophetic-type language, but then they say, but it's different in the future. In the future, it's going to be happen literally. Why do they say that? What proof do they give? They just say, because we're the big shots, and we've got a million dollars worth of books out there that Christians are gobbling off the shelves, and therefore we must be right. No, they're not right. And by the way, I've got a whole list of scriptures that refer to the sun being darkened. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven Old Testament scriptures. As far as the moon turning to blood or being darkened. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven scriptures. As far as the stars falling from the sky. One, two, three, four, five, six scriptures. Celestial powers being shaken. I've got a two. So I'm not going to list them all to you. You can get my notes off the internet if you so desire. But my point is, is this is a slam dunk, folks. That decreation rhetoric is referring to AD 70. It's not referring to something that's happened at the end of the world. Let's go to Matthew 24, verse 30. We'll finish up this audio. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, according to my Holman Christian Study Bible. 
because I'm going to show you this is not a good translation. Then the son of the son, then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn, and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. See there, the future say this is their favorite verse in this discourse. This has to refer to the end of time. Oh no, it doesn't. First of all, let's get the easy stuff out of the way. The Son of Man, that's a messianic term. I've got a lot of stuff I got off the internet describing how the Son of Man is messianic. I've mentioned it many times in previous audios. I won't do it here for the sake of time. Besides, nobody disagrees. The Son of Man is a messianic term that Jesus used to refer to himself. So he's referring to him as a Messiah, and he says a sign will appear in the sky. Well, actually, if you look at the uh, word order of the Greek, and I'm going to do that in a minute, it should read like this, then the sign of the Son of Man in heaven will appear. Sky, of course, can be translated as heaven as opposed to sky. In the heavens, in the skies, you know, the word's close in Chinese. Tian is the same word for sky and heaven, same thing with Greek. I think it's Uranus, if I remember correctly. So sky can be heaven, so let's translate it as heaven, and as we'll see the word order, then the sign of the Son of Man in heaven will appear. It's the Son of Man who is in heaven. His sign will appear on the earth. You're not, there's not going to be some kind of celestial astronomical sign that will appear in the side sky to show that Jesus is coming back. The sign, which is going to be the destruction of the temple in uh, AD 70, that's what's going to appear. And that sign belongs to the Son of Man who is in heaven. And it will appear. Now when you translate it that way, and I'm going to show you that's a perfectly reasonable way to translate it, we get a whole different picture, do we not? Alright, well let's start doing that. First of all, let's take sign. There's some options which I'm not going to go over because I don't think they're reasonable. I'm going to take the sign as being the destruction of Jerusalem. Adam Clark agrees with this. He says this, quote, The destruction of Jerusalem will be such a remarkable instance of divine vengeance, such a signal mag manifestation of Christ's power and glory, that all the Jewish tribes shall mourn. Now, the context directly favors this, remember? Matthew 24, verses 1, 2, and 3. And Matthew... 24 2 through 3 especially the disciples asked jesus do you see all excuse me jesus asked the disciples do you see all these things he's talking about the temple he asked truly i tell you not one stone here will be left on another in other words this stone here right here this temple here is going to be torn down one at one stone on top of another everyone will be thrown down every stone will be thrown down so he's talking about the destruction of the temple in the context verse 2 in the olivet discourse verse 3 as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? When will these stones of the temple be taken off one over the other and thrown down and the temple destroyed? When will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming? And at the end of the age. So right there, the disciples equate the sign of his coming in judgment and the destruction of the temple. When will this happen? Or as other translations say, when will these things happen? The destruction of the temple. When will these things happen? And what will be the sign? It's like sign is in apposition with these things. Sign is in apposition with the destruction of the temple. The sign is the destruction of the temple. What will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? The destruction of the temple. That way you will know that Jesus has come in judgment, finished his judgment, and the Jewish age is over with. Now, here are some other speculations as to what this sign is. I think they're all not good. Some Here's, here's one uh, that John Gill affirms is the Son of Man himself, the sign of the Son of Man, which can be translated, and he's right, the sign which is the Son of Man will appear in the sky. So that means it's Jesus is going to appear in the sky, which is a, favors a futurist interpretation. I don't agree with that. I don't think that's what it's talking about at all. Some people say it's a miraculous star, you know, the clouds of heaven, or a sound of a great trumpet, which is kind of strange because I don't know how a sound can appear in heaven. But you, people are looking for these extraordinary 
miraculous signs that appear in the sky. No, it's the Son of Man who is in heaven, not the sign is in heaven, it's the Son of Man. The sign is the destruction of the temple. It's not referring to Jesus appearing or, or sign in heaven appearing. John Gill says this, He shall appear not in person, but in the power of his wrath and vengeance on the Jewish nation, which will be a full sign and proof of his being come. And more particularly than the way Gill puts it, it's his destruction of the temple that's the sign that shows he's come in wrath and vengeance. All right, let's look at some other translation difficulties. All the peoples of the earth. Well, that translation makes it sound like we're talking about a worldwide cataclysm. Futurist bias in the translation. Earth, first of all, let's take the easy word earth. Earth is gase, or gay in the nominative, gay, and here it's taste gase in the genitive, of the earth. The That word gay is... 50-50, it can be translated land or it can be translated earth. For example, Jesus wrote with his finger in the in the gay, in the earth, when he was uh, uh, rescuing the woman accused by the Pharisees in adultery. It didn't mean he was writing on the planet. He's writing on the globe. He was writing in the dirt. And usually gay is kind of like a automatic sign for the land of Israel because earth can be translated as land. And this is easy to prove. I defy anybody to, to refute this, look it up in a lexicon. It's easy. It's a slam dunk. Earth can be land. You could also look at different English translations. Pick the word out somewhere in any passage in the Bible. Go through and do a, a lexical, lexical a, a, a concordance search on it, and you will see. Uh, it's all over the, the scriptures, and some ver versions translate it land, and some translate it in earth in given places. You have to go by the context. Well, if the context actually is 8070, which I submit that it is, then it would make more sense to translate that as the peoples of the land will mourn because they're the ones that are going to see their kingdom destroyed. Now, peoples of the earth, that sounds universal all across the world, but, excuse me, peoples of the earth makes it sound universal. Peoples of the land is a little bit confusing. Why would you say peoples of the, of the land? The Jews live in the land well because peoples can be translated as tribes. And in fact, the King James Version translates it as tribes. So we translate it this way. Then all the tribes of the land will mourn. Now, this is a quote from Zechariah 12.10. All the tribes of the land will mourn. This is quoting Zechariah 12.10. Zechariah says this. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him. The inhabitants of Jerusalem will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. This is obviously referring to the first century. Actually, there it's uh, we, the crucifixion in AD 30. It's quoted in many of Zechariah's prophecies were fulfilled in the first century, coming in on, in the Jerusalem on a colt of a donkey, the 30 shekels thrown into the house of the Lord from Judas Iscariot. Jesus in the Gethsemane, he predicts, he quotes Zechariah, 13.7, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. That was referring to him. And the best part, that's all of that's first century. The Gospel of John actually quotes the same verse that Jesus is quoting here in the Olivet Discourse, Zechariah 12.10. John says this, For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, They shall look on him whom they have pierced. So even though Jesus is referring the prophecy here to AD 70, Zechariah refer and John refer that same prophecy to eighty thirty, which shows that it's not referring to the end of the world. Now let's look at this phrase here. I told you that this phrase that then shall appear in heaven, then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven is the way it should go. Jesus' sign is in the sky. No, it's Jesus in heaven. Let's let's point this out. The Greek says this. It shows it clearly. 
In fact, the word order of the Greek is just like I'm trying to say, the sign of the Son of Man who is in heaven. Kai tote phanesatai will appear, and then will appear, phanesatai will appear, to semeon, the sign, to wheel to anthropu of the Son of Man in Uranu, in Urano, in heaven, and then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. That's exactly how the Greek reads. But no translation, no, no, the modern English translations don't translate it that way because they are biased for the, to the futurist interpretation. But it's as plain as the nose on your face if you look at the Greek. It's the sign, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man who is in heaven. This Jesus is in heaven. The sign is not in heaven. The sign's on earth. The sign is the destruction of the temple. And you'll notice the parallel versions of this phrase, leave out in heaven. Here's Mark 13:26. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Doesn't say anything about the, the sign in heaven. It just says the Son of Man is coming in clouds with great power and glory. Luke 21, verse 27. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. It's referring to the destruction of the temple. They don't mention any sign that's in heaven because that's, Jesus wasn't thinking about that. He was thinking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Adam Clark says this. Quote, the destruction of Jerusalem will be such a remarkable instance of divine vengeance, such a signal manifestation of Christ's power and glory, that all the Jewish tribes shall mourn. Slam dunk, folks. The verse that's supposed to be helping the futurist out is a preterist verse, because that's what Jesus was talking about. Let me go back to this word gay. I said it should be translated land. I just said you could look it up and see. Well, let me give you a quote to back that up. Adam Clark, by taste gays, that's a genitive of the land, by taste gaze of the land in the text is evidently meant here as in several other places the land of judea and its tribes either its then inhabitants or the jewish people wherever found so clark agrees with that and here's rt france who as far as i know is not a preterist but he says this quote with one exception the greek term translated earth is used elsewhere in the new testament as referring to the land of palestine which also is observed repeatedly in the septuagint so let's go back and Translate that verse. Then the sign of the Son of Man who is in heaven will appear. And then all the tribes of the land will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. We've got to deal with that last part of the verse now. The last part of Matthew 24:30 is a reference to Daniel 7:13 and 14. The tribes of the land will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now the question here is, is that seeing of the Son of Man coming, is it literal or is it figurative? Is it Jesus coming in judgment or is it rather a physical coming at the end of time? Now we've already talked about the word coming, how coming does not necessarily have to mean the second coming of Christ. I did that several verses previous in this audio, so I'm not going to go over those verses again. That's easy to show that it doesn't that parousia does not necessarily mean the second advent of the Lord. So that's not going to help us one way or the other. We are going to look here at a parallel passage in one of the Gospels, in the Gospel of John, where Jesus quotes this same passage, Daniel 7, 13-14, to the high priest when Jesus was charged with blasphemy and being the Messiah. So let's go there. Matthew 26, verse 64, Jesus said to him, that's Caiaphas, the high priest. This is the nighttime kangaroo court where Jesus was being so-called, allegedly tried by the Jewish authorities before they turned him over to the Roman Pontius Pilate. Jesus said to him, to Caiaphas, you have said it, namely that Jesus is the Messiah, 
You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, that sitting on the right hand of power comes from Daniel 7, 13, 14. was not mentioned by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. So let's take that verse here and see how Daniel applies to it. If you read Daniel 7, 13, and 14, you will see that it refers to Jesus coming up to the Ancient of Days, coming up to the Ancient of Days, coming on the clouds of heaven up, not down. So Jesus is taking the idea of him inheriting a kingdom, because if you read Daniel 7, 13, and 14, it talks about he will inherit a kingdom and his dominion will be forever. So that's that's the immediate context. Now, the first thing that futurists will say that this verse cannot refer to AD 70 because Jesus said to Caiaphas, you will see the Son of Man coming, and Caiaphas would be dead by AD 70. They're actually right. Caiaphas is probably going to be dead by AD 70 because Caiaphas was probably about 50 or so when he's appointed, and you add, well, when he was appointed, and then the years go by while he was appointed. He was appointed in AD 18, so by the time you get to AD 70, that makes him 100, 102 years old. And so, yeah, Josephus tells us he was appointed in AD 18. So, yeah, Caiaphas is probably going to be dead. And so, futurists like to say, see there, this verse cannot be interpreted on a preterist viewpoint. But there's a problem with that, with the futurist view. First of all, the first you, you have said that Jesus is the Messiah. Caiaphas says, are you the son of God? And Jesus said, yes, you, you have said it yourself. You have said it. That's Caiaphas, you. It's singular in the Greek, su. You have said that Jesus is the Messiah. Nevertheless, I tell you. Plural. And the English hides that number of the personal pronoun you. It's plural. So he's now referring to the Sanhedrin. He goes, he turns from Caiaphas. He looks to the Sanhedrin that's trying him and says, I tell you, you guys, y'all, hereafter you, plural, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And some of the Sanhedrin is going to be alive in AD 70. That's just 40 years from then. Jesus predicted that they were going to see the judgment of Jesus coming. And that's exactly what happened. Now let's look at this word, see. All the tribes of the earth are mourn, and you will see, Jesus said, you will see the Son of Man coming in power and great glory, sitting at the right hand of God. You will see. Well, futurists say see means it needs to be taken literally, and so we have to see the Son of Man coming literally. And since you can't see the Son of Man coming literally in AD 70, therefore this refers to Jesus' coming at the end of time. But if you look at the quote that Jesus gave Caiaphas in Matthew 26, he adds a little bit of quotation from Daniel. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So the coming on the clouds of heaven is Jesus mentions in the Olivet Discourse, but he mentions to Caiaphas also the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. Well, if you're going to take the verb see literally there, that means that us at the end of time on a futurist interpretation, we're going to have to see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. Obviously, that's meant to be taken literally. God doesn't have a hand. So, there's a two quoque for you. That's a soldier old lady argument. The see means in the sense of understanding. You will see and understand that Jesus has come to destroy the kingdom that tried to kill Jesus. Simple as that. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let me give you one further batch of scripture here. Well, first of all, let, let me go back and I mentioned got a little bit further evidence for the tribes of the land. I said peoples can be translated as tribes. Here's some translations that agree with me on that. I mentioned the King James, but I got some more. Young's Literal Translation, American Standard Version, New American Standard Bible, the Amplified Bible, Green's Literal, and the 
English Revised Version, the English Standard Version, the New King James Version, the Revised Standard Version, the New Revised Standard Version, the Dewey Rant. Translate that word, peoples of the earth, as tribes. Now, if they would just go ahead and make it tribes of the land, then you got a good translation. It's not talking about all the people of the earth at the end of the world. It's talking about the, the tribes who live in Israel in AD 70. One other bunch of Old Testament scripture I want to give you that refers to clouds and where clouds are associated with a non-bodily coming in judgment. The reason I say that is because Jesus said that you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. And, of course, people want to interpret that literally and say, see there, the only way that can happen is at the end of the world. Well, coming with clouds does not necessarily mean that there is a physical bodily return or coming associated with those clouds. We can see this in Old Testament scriptures. Isaiah 19.1, an oracle against Egypt. Look, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. There's coming, and he's coming in judgment to Egypt, and he's riding on a cloud. This is talking about God the Father. God the Father doesn't ride on clouds. Literally, this is poetic. Psalm 97.2-3, clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. This is referring to God, so clouds are associated with Judgment, fire goes before him and burns up his foes on every side. Clouds, judgment. Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 3, For a day is near, a day belonging to the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. Joel 2, 2, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and dense overcast. Like the dawn spreading over the mountains, a great and strong people appear, such as never existed in age past and never will again in all the generations to come. Nahum 1, 3, the Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. His path is in the whirlwind and storm, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. Jesus coming, a God coming, Lord the God, the Father coming in anger and in power with clouds. Second Samuel 22, verse 12. He made darkness a canopy around him, a gathering of water and thick clouds. There's darkness, judgment, clouds. Jeremiah 4, 13. Look, he advances like clouds. His chariots are like a storm. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. God coming in clouds. God the Father coming in clouds for judgment to ruin the people who he is judging, that's a non-bodily return because God the Father has no body. Zephaniah 1, 14 through 15, the great day of the Lord is near, near and rapidly approaching. Listen, the day of the Lord, then the warrior's cry is bitter. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. So clouds are associated with judgment, not necessarily bodily judgment. In fact, most of the time, if not all the time, not associated with bodily judgment. So to say that we're supposed to see Jesus literally coming on the clouds, and that didn't happen in 870, therefore we have to refer the Olivet Discourse to the end of the world, is not a tenable proposition. It is a proposition which I thoroughly and utterly and happily reject. All right, I have returned from my splice in Matthew 24, discussing verses 27 through 30 which covers Jesus coming on the cloud, that great eschatological word, coming, and also discussing the signs in heaven which would accompany his coven, coming. This is exactly what Luke covers in Luke 21, verses 25 through 27, so I am finished with this audio now. In our next audio, we will take up Luke's discussion in verses 28 through 36, where Jesus admonishes his followers to watch carefully for his coming. He gives the parable of the fig tree. I hope you'll stay tuned for that as we finish up Luke's version of the Olivet Discourse. See you next time.